So I'd just like to test the sound. Okay? Okay. I'd like to endeavor to pull some threads together, connect some dots in the reflection tonight on this Thanksgiving evening. And to begin with a poem I wrote um, that uh, came to my mind from some of the conversations in the small groups around the time we're in. And I wrote the poem around the time that we were in evacuation mode because of the fires here in North California. And uh, living that last year, living through that strangeness. There is a landscape beneath the push, the pull, the taut face turned into a wall. There is a distant sea where the sail ship chartered by winds of loss carries your hurting soul. Across that button-down defense of a hopeful future, here lives a musical box of wailing hearts waiting for your presence to enter their memory hall. Meet the ghosts, lost to the fires of annihilation, the COVID dead roaming, the psychotic war dogs unleashed. They all wail at the empty feast served in the valley of loss. They surf the riptide where litanies list the losses, echoing up from lattice grids shut down over the cargo of our long gone pieces. While silent ash of burnt forests, charred animals, birds dashed to earth, billions of tiny workers of evolution, houses, cars, and life dreams vanish. Algorithms march those confused into the razor vortex of truth is no more. Fragments of countries, families, friends swirl like ash storms from fallen worlds disintegrating our beleaguered minds. The dark red sky at midday announces you cannot live here anymore. We are now all queued refugees from America's strangeness. In the gaping void, monsters rush in. Float anyhow in your tear-filled body. Allow your aching chest, gasping to hold the karmic storehouse of wounds, to soften even more as you sail into shore to meet the ancient siren of ancestors' grief, your grief and all our grief at this nearing last station of our world's end. This few years we've been through, this time that we're in, is announcing that the world that we've been in is ending. We're in a moment of a myth-shattering moment. <laughs> the myths that we've lived within are dissolving. And it's a dangerous moment when that happens in the shift of a story, of a sort of a dream, a trance that we've lived. The union Edward Edinger, who wrote The Creation of Consciousness, said, The breakdown of a central myth is like the shattering of a vessel containing a precious essence. The fluid is spilt and drains away and meaning is lost. In its place, primitive context, contents are reactivated. Differentiated values disappear and are replaced by the elemental motivations of power, pleasure, or else the individual is exposed to emptiness and despair. I think we all feel that the impact, at least of these last few years, 
last six years and how this has been underlined, this feeling of a loss of a world uh, and the confusion and disorientation within that, some of the isolation of it, some of the weightiness of what's felt in that process and also the arriving into a more mapless territory where an unknown, an unknown lies before us while at the same time the ground beneath us is eroding and we are haunted by a past whose momentum is increasingly deadly. It's a difficult time. And if we've been feeling that, then that would be appropriate. If we've been feeling very deep sense of dislocation, fear, anxiety, panic, disorientation, overwhelm, stress. These are the symptoms of a disintegrating world. We're trying to gather together something, the lost pieces of a story that don't really hold together in the way that they used to. And as this old story is dying, those invested in it are trying to hold on with increased violence. And this is very systemic, endemic around the world, not just here in the US, but it's very heightened here because of course it is a country founded in massive violence, which is the nature of the colonial project at its heart. This nature is something that the veils are being ripped away for us to have to contemplate in this moment of reckoning. Our teacher that we've talked about a lot on this retreat, Ajahn Chah, said practice is preparation for when the big things hit. We practice here being with our breath, grounding, receiving how it is, contemplating how it is, shifting out of reactivity to wise response, softening out of the armoring of the body and the heart and the mind into more compassion, deeper listening. Whether it's a world end, whether it's an itch on the end of our nose, <laughs> the practice is actually the same, the core of the practice. The responses might be very varied in how that practice informs our engagement. But I really like this encouragement of Ajahn Chah to realize even when we feel nothing much is happening in this retreat that we're, we're doing and in the times when we bring reflective awareness and moments of mindfulness, it is actually accumulative. And it's very, very necessary because we are in a time when we're meeting some very, very difficult dynamics and it's not necessarily going to get easier. You know, it's a time of awakening. It's a time when we're called to grow up. It said in Corinthians, something that just popped into my mind <laughs> from a long time ago, <laughs> to leave behind our childish ways. You know, the fairy tales that uh, Guru was mentioning have to shatter. And we have to see what's real and what we're involved with. And we can. This is the capacity we're building. We're building a capacity to really reflect on this colonial project that we are experiencing the results of that has gone over millennia, and particularly the last Eurocentric version of it, which has been particularly brutal the last 500 years. Slavement, genocide, extraction, within hierarchies of power that we are all shaped within. A story revealing that the brilliance of our civilization, and it is extraordinary, brilliant, built from this mano vinyana, this consciousness that goes out and has been able to see the world as separate, separately observed as an object and to dissect that world to build the technologies, the cities, 
this illuminated, electrified world of great complexity, of great power that now covers the globe. And yet this, this world has been built on some false assumptions that are now those assumptions are coming home to roost for us to contemplate. The assumption, for example, that we have control over Mother Nature and that we can do what we like without consequences. So we're entering a new curriculum where we have to look at truths long hidden and to, to enter that curriculum more willingly rather than the huge reactivity that we're seeing. People don't want to look at what's gone before. Just hope that we can go back to some idealized state and not really take this opportunity in the, in the danger, in the challenge to evolve ourselves. And this is really where the Dharma has a huge part to play. We have to look at these stories that are false, like the story of the American dream, American exceptionalism, and instead to see that it isn't quite what it was cracked up to be, maybe. Not to, not to deny, actually, an enormous amount of American exceptionalism in a very positive way. <laughs> but it's also like the story of the British Empire, that the British like to still tell themselves and trying to get back to with their Brexit process, try to get back to a world that has fast and long gone, and this nostalgia. Apparently, the biggest shared holiday celebrated around the world is liberation from the British. And, and that would be news to the British, by the way. As they say in Ireland, which is where half my family is from, the Irish never forget their history. Of course, how can you forget the history of trauma and marginalization and colonization? And the British never remember theirs. And it seems that the America, in America, there's vast sections of the population are trying to do the same. But this, this isn't the curriculum that we're in. We have to connect the dots. Paticca Samupada, dependent origination. We arrived here not just through some mysterious like happening. We arrived here through causes and conditions. So there is dukkha. <laughs> there is dukkha. And this dukkha in the foundations of mindfulness we contemplate internally and externally. It's not just an internal affair. We can also look at causes and conditions and apply mindfulness externally, not only to the internal processes, but to the external systems that we're living within, to investigate the causes and conditions and how they bring about the results that we're experiencing that are creating such disturbance and imbalance and leading us to this precipice that we're teetering on. So in the same way that we, uh, we look internally at this idea of a centralized self in control, owning, that has its plans and its ideas, has its place, but through the lens of the Dharma, it isn't so substantial. It isn't as, so as in control as it thought it was, and it certainly isn't as owning of everything as it thought it was. As Ajahn Chah would say, if you get a cold, you know, did the body ask you? Did it get asked permission to get sick? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, this is our ace card. I remember one night I was having this really terrible time. I'd had a, one of the worst things really is a, a root canal and it went really wrong. And I landed up with this massive abscess, and it was so excruciating that I actually drove one night, it was in the UK, and one night I just drove myself to the emergency and basically was saying, could you just sort of put me out of my misery? I don't care how you do it. It was just like, <laughs> and they said, uh, sorry, here's some more antibiotics, just go back home. So I was, the only thing that gave me comfort was thinking of Ajahn Chah and how he would say, what, when Kitty Sarah asked him one point, you know, what do you do with pain? 
And he said, you just know pain. You just have to know pain. This is dukkha. And then I would realize how much pain he had. The last 10 years of his life, he was pretty much paralyzed. Enormous, must have been enormously, enormously challenging. And yet he prepared, his practice prepared him. And he was navigating that. You know, so this practice is preparation for when we do lose control and we have to meet the realities of causes and conditions of being embodied. It's not a personal statement about some failure. It's just that we have this human body. And we contemplate it will be sick and it will go through its aging processes if we're lucky enough to actually age. Not everyone is lucky enough to age. And have that opportunity to contemplate the Dharma. Actually, it's a great opportunity for Dharma practice. As the fevers of the mind begin to, 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 uh, to lessen if we've been a practitioner. In the same way, we can look at these, this idea of ownership that is actually fundamentally one of the primary causes of what's led us to where we are. In the mists of time when we were more nomadic, indigenous, in sort of more earth, matriarchally-based cultures, as indigenous people still are in many ways to this time, there wasn't an idea of ownership. You can see that where... We've lived for many years in the great uh, Drakensberg Mountains, the home of the San peoples, so-called Bushmen. And you see their paintings all through those mountain range where the little hermitage we built is. Just on the back of that mountain, some of you here have been there, there are caves with paintings of the shaman that has shape-shifted into a half human, half whatever, leopard, animal, and is wrestling with the, with the uh, rain beast, the dragon, the being that still lives in that mountain. You get sensitive enough, you can feel the presence. And uh, to control the weather, that's why the, the mountain where we are is called Nvuleni. It means place of rain because it has these unique weather patterns around it. There wasn't a sense of owning that land. There was a sense of relationship with it, working with the elements of the land, the spirits of the land. And even that comes through the Buddha's teaching. And the chants that we've done, often invoking the devas and the great spirits and the protected spirits of the Dharma. These are very real energies that, that the Buddha engaged with and called on for protections uh, that it is this is a, a cosmology that we're in that isn't just a monochrome, monodimensional reality that we have one of the views of our modern culture. But then as this sort of domestication and agriculture took root and there was this sense of ownership and the rise of properties and the ownership extending to land and humans, other humans, to offspring, the patriarchal system, the meta-system that's shaped all the social and legal and political, religious and economic organization in most places around the world to, until now, continuing, we're handed down through the male lineages. There's sort of a sense of we own this and now, of course, in that process, there's a decentralization of earth, relationship with earth, shared commons, and with an ensouled world. We lost the sense of being participatory beings in an ensouled world where we belonged. Losing the depth feminine in that ensouled world, in awe of nature not just in a gender-based way of seeing. So we can look at these, these, you know, just this is a very, very unnuanced touching a few points. But without understanding some of these core worldviews that have brought us to this place, really, of, you know, we, we are, we're in a, 
I think I think it's news to any any of us here sitting here that we're in a, a, a time of mass mass extinction, great climate instability, of loss of biodiversity, uh, droughts, and you know that's gaining momentum. It means that we actually, if we can begin to look at what's brought us here, we can actually, in the same way as we look at the causes of what generates suffering internally, we can start to undo those causes. We can radically realign ourselves and reorientate ourselves, which is really the curriculum that we're invited into, not to try and go back to an old world that's fast disappearing and needs to disappear. An old world that can actually does, the, an old world pre-modern um, civilization, living that's lived on the edges of that civilization, this world of the First Nation peoples that have held still to this day the sacred web of life. Yeah, this, is, this is really our real inheritance, that we're participatory beings in this sacred web of life that enables human life enables the life of all things to reclaim that what is it to reclaim this sense of sacredness this is our contemplation to live in a way the first precept of harmlessness this is the training not to harm this is so if if we just all kept that one precept we wouldn't be in this place we are now that's just a simple thing. So while it does go back to the mind, it also goes back to the systems generated from this mind that has been driven by delusion, by greed, by hatred, to the point where there's now the sense of ownership of all elements of life, peoples, plants, forests, oceans, DNA, air, water, traded in the marketplace. So, at the heart of this, this sense of the owning, and at the heart of that, this loss of connection, this loss of in, of this 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 sense of soul, actually. This erroneous view goes back into the mists of the Middle Ages. This sense of owning Mother Nature. This is the primary delusion that we can actually shift our relationship out of that. This extractive way that we relate without consequence, without understanding that we're set, we've set in motion the causes for our own extinction. <laughs> I mean, that is really as Ajahn Chah would probably say, stupid. You know, really, really. But it's, you know, we're all kind of wedded in. But we can unwed ourselves. <laughs> we can shift our mindfulness. We shift from the patterning, the, the conditioned patterning. We can shift out of that through mindful contemplation, internally and externally. From this view, as Francis Bacon said, nature must be bound in service, hounded in her wanderings, and put on the rack and tortured from her, for her secrets is from the 1500s. This is what we're still living through. The mechanical inventions of recent years do not merely exert a gentle guidance over nature's courses. They have the power to conquer and subdue her, to shake her to her very foundations. So this is a view, the power of the mind, power. We think we're powerless. That this mind, under full, an erroneous view, the Buddha said, is nothing as dangerous as pernicious wrong view. <laughs> this view that has brought us to where we, the foundations of nature are literally shaking and has cut away our sense of belonging and connection 
So the the immediate karma is either despair, depression, lostness, violence. This four as it goes on, and it's sort of underwritten in this sort of theocratic way, Christian theocratic, where Francis Bacon goes on that nature has to be enslaved to humans to quote to regain our dominion that was lost in the fall from grace in Eden. So this sort of erroneous sense that we've fallen from grace. I love the way in the Dharma there isn't that sense. There is the the natural state of our being is awakened, not sinful, not fallen. It's just a question of reclamation and recognizing the original brilliant, luminous, bright, awake, present nature that is always here, illuminating, contemplating, has the capacity for compassion, for wisdom. And Bering, a union scholar and mystic, talks about the word feminine standing for the soul and the unseen cosmic web of life that connects each one of us and all others to the life of the planet and the greater life of the cosmos. This reclamation of soul, this is one of our parts of our curriculum, not necessarily in the Judaic Christianized way. I know we don't use that word in Buddhism, but it is the reclamation of our participatory belonging in the web, sacred web of life where we feel this sacred web of life isn't dead matter, as we've been told, that we can just dissect and use according to our extractive profit-making machinery. It's alive and intelligent. The primal human being, our original nature, if you like, our original indigenous nature, perceives the natural world as permeated with meaning. This is Richard Tarnas from Cosmos and Psyche, whose significance is at once human and cosmic. Spirits are seen in the forest, presences are felt in the wind and oceans and rivers and mountains. The primal world is ensouled, it is impregnant with signs and symbols, implications and intentions. A continuity exists from the interior world of the human to the world outside. The human psyche is embedded within a world psyche. Within this relatively undifferentiated state of consciousness, humans perceive themselves directly, emotionally, mystically, consequentially participating and communicating with the interior life of the natural world and cosmos. This is available to us. We have a, perhaps we have a memory of it. Perhaps we feel it. Perhaps we're more in touch with it. We feel the loss. But we're here to communicate. And Kogi, the indigenous peoples of this, the, in Colombia, the Sierra Nevada, Santa Mata Mountains, talk about the earth as the one, as a living body who feels what we do to her. This earth is living, conscious, intelligence, who is in their spiritual leaders as they're trained. This is, a, this is an indigenous people that were high, so high up in the, in the mountains they weren't touched by the Colombian colonization. They sort of, and they sent messages. They've been actually to Google <laughs> to give the messages that they want to give. Basically, wake up, younger brother quick they see what's happening and they train their enlightened ones very early to what they call stay with the thread they stay, they 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 grow up in the dark so they have their other senses are awake and they feel the thread that they say so they can communicate with another nature and feel her intelligence and connect with it through ceremony and prayer so they can understand her messages and the gogi they talk about us our special place as humans to be conduit for these messages. And as in the Buddhist practice, as the mind clears from its reactivities and from its delusions, we start to hear our deeper connection. We start to feel ourselves as this conduit 
as Ajahn Chah called it, the living Dharma, this Prajna intelligence, the living spirit of Mother Nature. We feel it in the heart as guidance, as intuitively. We're in the insoled world and part of it, and that is so profoundly healing. Instead, we so we have to we have to uh, reclaim this. We have to offer this as a different alternative to the billionaire <laughs> vision of the me- mechanistic world that we're where we're sort of being this sort of lifting up and out. This is the old transcendent worldview as apart from this world. Out where are we going to cold space? <laughs> That's where we're being taken. And away from reclaiming and healing this, this immensely beautiful Mother Earth. I mean, how can you replicate that in cold space and on Mars? You know, I mean, wh- what is that psychosis, really, psychotic state, psychopathic psychosis? You know, this living world, you know, is, is not dead. It's not a soulless mechanistic view. And yet we've been turned into part of this machinery. In China, where our Apple computers are made in Foxconn, a poem emerged from one of the workers, the the millions of migrant workers that flood into the cities in their great reconstruction, decimation also of the environment there. A screw that fell to the ground in this dark night of overtime plunging vertically, lightly clinking. It won't attract anyone's attention. Just like last time on a night like this, when someone plunged to the ground. This is where, this is uh, where our old view is taking us. It's suicidal. It's got nothing to offer, except this sort of rather meaningless heart. Uh, you know, other than perhaps building up our portfolio for those that still can have a portfolio and increasingly less and less of the world can have that. And it always struck me how at Foxconn, when you see the pictures of the giant factories, that they actually put netting up like they did in the slave ships to stop people jumping overboard to keep the workers in. (laughs) They never finished this enslavement, really in this system that we're in. So we have the chance in this practice to shift our consciousness radically from an allegiance with the system and the systems that would keep this mother nature as a slave, keep the, the beings in this mechanistic worldview that's so cold and disconnected, where there's no such thing as a society, as Margaret Thatcher and Reagan said in the 18s, and we're seeing the result of that. There is such thing as a society. We need each other more than ever. We're not just individuals out for our own gain. We are here to be with the beauty of Mother Nature. We are here to resolve at our hearts this drivenness of greed, hatred, and delusion and replace that, as Kitty Sorrow has been speaking so beautifully, with the great return. Our curriculum is about the great return, inwardly turning the mind back into its own nature and outwardly reclamation of the soul, being ensouled in this beautiful sacred web of life, reclamation of our connection as participatory beings together in this web of life, reclamation of the lost feminine, healing of the masculine, releasing out of this binary gender system that is so oppressive and violent of patriarchy. These are our tasks. As Baba Mandaza, our guide from Zimbabwe, when I asked him when we were there, he's a holder of the spirits, lion spirits, water spirits, and actually more profoundly a voice, a direct voice of Mother Nature, I asked her how he understood Mother Nature. He said, I call her creator myself. Humanity has forgotten where we come from. We actually came from the earth. 
She is mother. She is creator. She is the giver of everything. Humans think we own land. Since we own it, we think we can control it. This is wrong thinking altogether. But we are right when we call her Mother Earth. She is the mother of all things. We declared our independence from her and she is watching. And her comment is, I just want to see how far you're going without me. We are going in circles around her. If she declares her independence from us, where do you think we're going to stand? We have to connect with her for our own good. She is the message of hope for the future. She is the life giver. Tampering with her is tampering with our own lives. She is a wonder. That is why she calls herself, I am the I am. The great return. The I am and the I am is not just an internal affair. It's a collective field of relationship within the ensouled world of Mother Nature. It is a shift of consciousness. And in a shift of consciousness entails a dismemberment. It's like we're in a shamanic journey together. That's how I see what's happening now. In a shamanic journey, it's a dismemberment. The ego is ripped asunder. <laughs> it's terrifying. The places and pieces where we've orientated ourselves are lost. And we have to realign. That's why this, ref this retreat's called a journey into refuge, presence, and love. Because that's what we have to align with. This is what we trust in this journey. As we re realign with the timeless, deathless heart that can illuminate and guide us, it's okay for us to be dismembered at this point. We have to be. This old system, this old story is not working. It's killing us, literally. And we have in it a great opportunity to realign with this living, heartfelt Dhamma and to understand the views that we, the mechanistic view that have come and fueled this whole mess is completely erroneous. Max Planck, the first quantum physicist of the early 1900s, said, As a man who has devoted his whole life to the most clear-headed science, the study of matter, I can tell you there is no such thing as matter. All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force. We must assume behind this force is the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Emptiness is wonderful existence, wonderful existence is empty. In Buddhist practice, we understand we're not an individual. We are, of course, individuated. And that is actually an evolutionary task. And so that's that. But we are actually also part of a primary conscious, a matrix of consciousness, where everything is conscious, deeply rooted in a reality of a living, speaking intelligence. Eckhart Tolle says, we are a focal point where the universe is becoming conscious of itself. This is a big story we're in. This is a big awakening process. And we are understanding in that process that we are changeless, the changeless within change. We are change within the changeless. And we are neither change nor the changeless. We are, in fact, like Mother Earth herself, like this whole cosmos, a mystery, fathomless. And we have work to do. We can't go back. We feel the tectonic plates moving beneath our feet. We feel the world spinning beneath us out of control. What we felt was solid is not so much. We feel things falling apart. It's terrifying. People are reacting 
They're in a psychotic break, they can't deal with what's happening and they're triggered in their very uncooked patterns. And it's just wild out there. (laughs) It's like a collision, even the feeling of time and space is changing. It's sort of like it's all devolving and imploding into a nowness where we experience this intersecting of timeless presence and of intention and attention at the point of emergence. It's like we, we're coming into, we can, we can touch this place of free-flowing conscious awareness, the point of emergence where we can interact and interface with that conscious awareness to set intention, a different intention, a different voice than the voices that have gone on for millennia that have controlled human consciousness fear and shame and I'm not worthy and, and guilt and, and the, the oppressive voices to realign with a different voice. Mind, said the Buddha, precedes all things and it's at this mind that we can reorientate within a whole new way of being, set a new intention. We don't have to grasp at the kaleidoscope of every moving part. We don't have to try and pick up all the pieces. We can walk into another space and sit in a beloved circle. There is a beloved circle that we are outside the walls of conformity, outside the walls of the mind. We're a storehouse of untamed dreams will decolonize our minds, our hearts, our bodies. This is our curriculum. This is our practice. In this free fall, we're swimming in uncharted, in an uncharted flow, plunging to the core, into a light nucleus that at the same time is here, there, everywhere, without center or circumference, everywhere we touch is living presence. Unbounded, creative, a bubbling spring, bringing forth a matrix of light manifesting as matter, as Max Planck so correctly saw. This is our our inheritance too. It's anatta, we don't have to be inflated (laughs) and claim it. It is a conduit for conscious awareness. We are that. So we can surrender our disconnected minds into this process with each breath, each embodied simple breath, grounding, feeling the simplicity of that. This is the beauty of the simplicity of being human. It's so complex being human, but at the core, there's something nice about just like a hobbit having a cup of tea. And just sitting with friends as enough, each breath holding our cup while the universe swirls within and around us in its big story that we are inevitably a part of. It's extraordinary. And yet we can sip our tea and just be with the unknowing and the awe of it, the terror and the beauty. Five years ago, I was in Standing Rock. It's probably the only uncolonized space I've ever been in. And it was really disorientating. I was looking for the shop (laughs) to get a cup of tea. Of course, there wasn't one. There, before you could even... This was an extraordinary gathering, actually. It's an indigenous-led resistance through the power of collective prayer and ceremony in the context of a 500-year-long impact of colonization with First Nations people. And First Nations people gathered from all the tribes of Turtle Island and further beyond in Chief Arvel, looking horse call to all people of prayer to join in. And that's what happened. Veterans came. It was cold, I'll tell you that. We stood for several hours in the morning in this huge circle while everyone was smudged. I had like every layer and more that I could find 
in that and then slowly walk to the Missouri River and stand for another hour or two sinking in the mud on the edge of the bank as the shamans went out and prayed to the spirits of the river. And the river slowly started to speak and come alive. And you think, what are we doing putting an oil thing underneath this beautiful river? If that awareness, we can't do it. That is the indigenous awareness. This is the, the voice we must now listen to. We must, they are our elders. We must be humble. And before you could really walk very far into that whole space, you were, went to a sort of decolonized training. Given the seven precepts of the Lakota peoples, prayer, deep listening, indwelling spirit of creation, prayerfully is this deep in listening into the indwelling spirit. There was more said, but in brief, because I'm running out of time. First, prayer. Second, respect. Differential listening. Willingness to shift into new ways internally, new behaviors externally. This is the undoing of our agreements and our contracts with the systems that perpetuate violence. This is our homework. This is our curriculum respect and deep listening, compassion, take care of one another, have compassion toward yourself and others when making mistakes, honesty, be true and authentic, generosity, put in more than you take out, humility, hold off pushing your agenda, be sensitive to internalized colonial conditioning. And the last one, wisdom. We all carry wisdom. Learn to listen. Baba Mandaza, who I spoke about, he would say the children are the elders. <laughs> These days, pretty much true. It's not necessarily about gray hair anymore. It basically is an encouragement to reclaim this heart. This heart, no, we don't have to do this. Ego can't do this journey. It has this humility to be dethroned. The biggest journey from this mind to the heart. This journey is this retreat, journey into refuge, presence, heart, one breath at a time. This is our practice, just this much. It doesn't, it's a big project that we're in. But the actual doing of the practice is really just the simplicity of this much. What's here now, bringing attention there, bringing presence, love, mindful breaths. And letting the path unfold. I'd like to finish with some words from a Hopi elder to encourage us. Because I know we all feel a bit discouraged in this time. But to take heart, to take courage. You have been telling people, well, you might not have, but we probably should be, telling people that this is the 11th hour. Now you must go back and tell the people that this is the hour. And there are things to be considered. Where are you living? What are you doing? What are your relationships? Are you in right relationship? Where is your water? Know your garden. It's time to speak your truth. It is time to speak our truth. Create your community. Be good to each other. And do not look outside yourself for the leader. There is a river flowing now very fast. It is so great and swift, there are those who will be afraid. Even so, this is a good time. Those who are afraid will try to hold on to the shore. They will feel they are torn apart and will suffer greatly. No, the river has its destination. The elders say we must let go of the shore, push off into the middle of the river, Keep our eyes open and our heads above water. And I say, see who is in there with you and celebrate. At this time in history, 
we are to take nothing personally, least of all ourselves. For the moment that we do, our spiritual growth and journey comes to a halt. The time for the lone wolf is over. Gather yourselves. Banish the word struggle from your attitude and your vocabulary. All that we do now must be done in a sacred manner and in celebration. We are the ones we've been waiting for. On this Thanksgiving night, may we hold and extend our gratitude to Mother Earth and all that she offers to all beings in her wondrous web of creation. We extend gratitude that we're here together with all beings, sharing this mysterious unfolding of this evolutionary and awakening journey. May we give gratitude that we can be present at this time. May we call on all ancestors, all elders, to stand with us, all awakened ones, all subtle and elemental beings to stand with us, to bring courage so that we can bring forth what is needed for healing, for transformation, for the evolution of our new story. May it be so, and so it is. Om Nani. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.